Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, my name is Drew, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Rim. And uh, gosh, Friday morning uh, at 1 a.m., my wife nudged me and uh, was like, hey, one of two things happened. I either wet the bed or my water just broke. And uh, we figured out it was her water was just broke, and so we rushed to the hospital and then... uh, uh, at noon on Friday, uh, we welcomed our son, Lyndon Gray, into the world. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, mom's doing well. We had a little bit of complications. Lyndon came out, and uh, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck, and his lungs were, were filled with fluid, and so he wasn't able to, to breathe on his own. And so they rushed him to the NICU, and uh, I mean, all these wires and a CPAP to help him kind of breathe. They even have a a, a picture. And so, uh, which is just a a really difficult place uh, to see, you know, your son um, in a space where you haven't even gotten to hold him yet. And, um, And so you're just like begging God to move. And so the last, really it's been 48 hours, have been such a whirlwind, and uh and so just reaching out to House Church, to many of you guys in our faith family. And yesterday afternoon, um, it was just a lot of silence. We just had a lot, of, there were a lot of unknowns. And yesterday afternoon, we had um, the doctors call us after literally a pastor, a uh, friend of ours from Nashville, just called and prayed over us for 20 minutes. And then about five minutes later, uh, the doctor from the NICU called and said, uh, there's been this huge shift. Uh, we're able to take the CPAP off of him, and uh, there's a picture, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and we're hopeful that maybe even this afternoon that Jane will be able to even just start the process of breastfeeding, and we're really hopeful and believing that both of them will get to come home uh, maybe later this week. So keep us in your prayers. I do want to say uh, thank you. Um, this last, like I said, 48 hours has been a crazy, crazy whirlwind. So I, I will apologize up front. I don't know what you're about to get. Uh, my brain's not fully functioning. Um, but also, uh, I want to tell you thank you. Um, this last 48 hours, we've gotten to really see the church be the church. And um, I, uh, I, I don't believe that just the process that we walked through is because I'm a pastor here at the Rim, but I believe it's been incredibly encouraging just because I'm a part of this faith family. And, uh, and watching you guys, I mean, just the, the thread of so many texts of just you guys praying over us, calling us to pray over us, I, I believe with all of my heart that um, what happened yesterday was an answer to your prayers, believing that there was, there was a miracle that happened. Um, and then you guys just loving our, our family. Um, 
you know, we had, uh, I, won't, I won't call them out because they'll get embarrassed, but I mean, had one of you show up to our house and, and mow our yard. There was a, a family that, that came to our house and was praying over the house and realized that the house was a little in, you know, it was a little disaster. And so they cleaned the entire house and made it spotless. And there was even just a little welcome sign that just said, welcome home, Lyndon Gray. And uh, meals being sent to the hospital, just the encouragement. I just, I honestly can't imagine walking through this without community um, and without the support system. So I want to tell you, thank you. Um, I believe that this, we got to see the family uh, really shine. And, and, and I say this, my hope is, is that for all of you, that all of you, whether life is, is there's moments of celebration or devastation that you have, man, the, the, the faith family that can surround you and lift your arms up on the days that you have got nothing left. That'll, that'll, that'll encourage you and make extra meals and clean your house and maybe mow your lawn if that's what you need. And so many people in our country walk in just this individualistic society. And when, when the hard times come, there's no one there to step into it. Or when good times are there, there's very few that are able to celebrate. And so church, listen, we talk about it often. We desire to be a family, and that's not just a cute adjective that we say. Like, we, we really want to be a family. And you guys, these last 48 hours, we got to see it. So I just want to tell you, uh, thank you so much. It means the world that you would love, Jane and I. Um, and two other things real quick um, that God has just kind of shown me in, in this season uh, is that one that there was a moment I'm just praying over Lyndon when he's hooked up to all this stuff and just not even knowing what to ask and just felt like the Lord just whispered to my heart, Drew, I love Lyndon more than you do. I love him more than you do. And I have plans for him. And even though you may not know what those are, they're better than your plans for Lyndon. And even if the worst comes, I'm still good. I'm still good. And then I think there's been this beauty of watching Lyndon and Jane and I just, there's just been this dependence on God. Like we're just been like, God, like if you don't show up, like this is going to go bad. Like if you don't fill Lyndon's lungs with breath, like he's not going to make it. You have to do this. And last night, Jane and I were talking, it was just like God was like, hey, Drew, you know that's always the case. That's always the case. And you just, for a moment, the illusion broke and you got to see reality. That Drew, you always need me. You're dependent on me for breath every single day. And if you think about that, like not a single one of us in this room wills our heart to beat. It is by the grace of God that he holds us together. And we got a little bit of a glimpse. And so this morning, uh, you know, the message is going to shift a little bit. Like I said, I don't know what's about to happen, but I will say this. My prayer has been for you and just kind of thinking through this scripture of going, God, what, what, do I, what would I want Lyndon to hear? Like if I could preach my first message to my son, what is it that I want him to hear? And, uh, and so this is just my hope and my prayer for him. And this is the focus of this passage today. So if you're just taking notes, I'm gonna kind of give it to you and I'm gonna hopefully be able to unpack it. And here it is. The church, your focus in life, your focus ultimately determines your direction, and your direction will determine your destination. That's, that's what I want, I want Lyndon to understand. 
Because, Lyndon, your focus in life determines the direction that you're going to head and ultimately is going to determine the destination. For any of you guys that have ever maybe snowboarded or skied or skateboarded or done any type of like water sports where you're pulled behind a boat, um, you know that. That's a general rule. That if you're snowboarding, like that where you look, your body shifts that and it determines the direction and ultimately will determine the destination. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is going to tell us where he wants us to put our focus. He's going to tell us what's the most important thing. Above all else, if you're going to zero in on one thing in life, this is where it's at. There's a lot of important things, but this is what you need to focus on. This needs to be the most important. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 or 4, he says this. He says, for I passed on to you as most important what also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All of us this morning have a list of things that are important to us. And it may be family, it may be friends, it may be jobs, it may be passion, it may be health, it may be your purpose, it may be your education, All of us have a list of important things, but Paul here is going to say, no, no, there's one thing that's the most important. And by him saying that this is most important, he's implying that he's got a list of things that are important to him as well, but this one is in a special class of its own. In fact, in this letter here, Paul's made a statement in the earlier chapter that many scholars believe was an exaggeration, that Paul was being a little over the top. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Paul says, I've decided to know nothing among you except this thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here's why many people think it's an exaggeration, because Paul talks about a lot of stuff in this letter to this early church in Corinth. He talks about a lot of important things other than just Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And the things he talks about are definitely important. But here's why I believe that Paul would say, listen, but my whole focus is on this one thing. Because for Paul, the gospel was his one agenda, his one priority. It was his authority. It was his blueprint for action. And the church at Corinth, listen, it was a giant mess, a huge mess, and they're getting, like, listen, like, there's scripture, like, just already what we've read in the Bible reading plan, like, the church is getting drunk on communion wine. Uh, there's, there's a guy in the church who's sleeping with his stepmom. Like, I mean, it's just, it's pretty crazy. It's all a true story. And so there's these moments where it's easy to look at even the church in Corinth and be like, man, we've kind of got it together here at the rim for the most part. Uh, we still got some issues, but, like, that's pretty intense. And the, the, the church in Corinth, man, has all kinds of moral problems, some really, like I said, dysfunctional family issues. There's doctrinal confusion, ethnical strife, of strife political tensions, even like a cult of personality wrapped around certain leaders and so on. And so Paul, as he's speaking into these issues, what he's saying is this, that my answer to all of life's mess is Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's Jesus. And listen, can we just pause for a second? You hear that and you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. That's what the church is supposed to say. Like, right? That, that, that's the answer for everything. 
Okay, like you're walking through this hard time. Jesus. But can we be honest? Very few of us are feeling the power and the effects of that. It feels like a cute sentiment, but means very little to our lives. And so Paul's going to walk us through how this actually impacts us, how practically this plays out in our life. And so two weeks ago, we taught from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm just going to reread a few verses, verses 10 and 11. Just I want you to see this, okay? You can see this. All, it's been, this has been his message all the way through this letter. In verse 10, he says, According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. That he's saying that there can be no other foundation for anything inside of the church that we would build on. Anything as individuals that we would build on. And anything that we, that we build, like it should be an extension. Or it should definitely like coincide with Jesus and not be separate. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul explains that he's personally willing to change any and everything about his life to get more opportunities to tell people about the gospel and to tell people about Jesus and what he's done. That he says that I'm willing to set aside my preferences, my ethnicity, my culture, my politics, anything if that means that more people will get to hear about Jesus. He's that important. In verse 22 of chapter nine, he says, I have become all things to all people so that I may, be, and that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel. And in verse 16, he says, because I am compelled to preach and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So throughout this entire letter, Paul is showing us that he prioritizes the gospel above anything else in his life. So let's ask this question. This is where I want us to kind of spend our time. Why? Paul, Paul why is the gospel so important to you and why should it be so important to us? But real quick, before we, we dive into why it's important, we need to answer this question, what is the gospel? When we say the word gospel, what exactly do we mean? Because it's a little bit of a churchy word. And we may, we may have all kinds of different adjectives. We're like, oh yeah, yeah, the gospel means good news. The good news of what? Like the gospel is, is the story of the Bible, but what? Like when we say the gospel, I want you to know at the Rim Church, this is what we mean, okay? And so I'm gonna help us, uh, I'm gonna just kind of show us a diagram. And George is gonna kind of help me walk through this. But this is the story, honestly, of the gospel, the good news, and the story uh, of this entire book. And so if you're wanting, I've ever been curious about what this Bible is really all about, I'm about to give it to you in three minutes, okay? And so you're going to sound really smart if you repeat this. But here we go. So we'll give you some circles. This, this book, at the very beginning in Genesis, that we see that, that there's just God. And God, in perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and decides to speak the world into existence. That he creates simply with his words. And he forms every single thing. We get into the sixth day and God reaches into the dirt and he begins to form mankind and he breathes life into Adam. Why? So that, that we as humans could have a relationship with the God of the universe. 
to be fully known, fully loved, that God has a design for this world, and this world, it's, it's perfect. Like everything was, was in harmony. Every, like we had perfect relationship and intimacy with the God that spoke the world into existence. That's the first two chapters. In chapter three, we get three chapters in before we decide to do it on our own. And we go, God, thanks. We'll take it from here. You set, it us, up, you set us up, but we'll take it from here. So, hey, we know that you're usually in control, but we want to be in control. And in that moment, we committed treason and we stepped out of God's design. And the Bible uses this word sin. And that's, what it, that's all it means. Is that we stepped out of God's design, the way that he put like, things in motion. And we said, we know better than you. And we committed treason against the high king. And that, 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 that sin, it led us into brokenness. That that moment that the world shattered and it broke. And every one of us, we, we know that. We feel that, right? Like you, you don't have to be in the NICU watching your son hooked up to all of these wires and a breathing machine to go, surely this isn't how it was meant to be. God, this isn't how you designed it. You don't watch the news and before you go, surely not. Like every one of us knows inside of our heart, it's broken. And everything that we try to do to fix this on our own just leads to more brokenness. And whether that's relationships, substances, even religion, it just leads to more brokenness. You and I cannot fix ourselves. I want you just to see this really, really quick. If God is the author of life, he's the giver of life, and you and I, the moment we took control, it only led to death. Like, think about this. The moment you were born, from that moment, it's, it's going down, downhill. Like you're, you're every minute, a step closer to death. That's what you bring to the table. That's all you got. But the author of life, this and this whole Old Testament, like it's got some really jacked up stories. I'll be honest with you. Like it's crazy. But the entire Old Testament, let me just sum it up, is just one giant promise. And the promise is that God sees you and I in our brokenness. He knows we can't fix ourselves. And he's willing to insert himself into the plot to fix it all. And one day the hero's coming and he's going to fix it all. That's what this story's about. And so when you turn the pages from Old Testament into the New Testament, we see the hero show up, but it's not what we expected. The hero was actually God himself. He was willing to wrap himself in human flesh and move into our trailer park. And we call him Jesus. Or at Christmas, we call him Emmanuel, meaning God's with us. So that's this, like third, this little third circle, that, that the gospel. That's the story. That God isn't just distant. He wanted to enter into the story to show us what it means to, to be fully alive. Like Jesus lives the life that we should have lived. And he, he, he models for us what it means to be fully human. And then he's willing to lay his life down on your cross. Not his, yours. For your, that, that, that was your death penalty for your treason against the high king. And God himself was willing to place his life on the cross to be slaughtered, 
placed into a tomb, and then three days later, he walks out of the tomb, proving that he has the power over sin and death. He writes a check on the cross, and three days later, it's proven to be cashed. And so you may go, okay, so Jesus was willing to live the life that you should have lived. He's willing to die the death that we should have died. If you want to sum up the gospel in just a single word, you just sum it up with this word substitution or exchange. That Jesus was willing to do everything that you can't do so that we could be restored into God's design. The way we do this is, watch this, the Bible uses two, two words. Jesus even preached them in his first message. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Your response, if you want this, if you want the life I offer, is to repent and to believe. Now, those words, let me just kind of maybe an easier words, because those, those are a little churchy, just mean to turn and to trust. To turn to, to, to God and, go, and admit and go, hey, listen, okay, I've kind of made a mess of all of this. And repent means I, I want you to take the wheel. I, I want to step off of the throne and Jesus, you step onto it. You are God. You're in control. You design this. You do a better job of leading than I do. That's what repentance means. And then belief is putting all of your weight on that. Okay, now this is really important. Belief, for many of us, when we see that, we think of like a, a cognitive belief, like, like how you believe in Santa Claus. You know, like, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that Jesus walked on earth. I believe that he, he lived 33 years. I believe he died on a cross. Listen, here, just real talk. I don't know, because we're all in different parts of this faith journey. Listen, there is more proof that that happened than that Shakespeare walked on planet earth. Jesus walking on earth is not in question. That's historical. What you do with that is different. And so belief that he walked on earth, yeah, yeah. The scripture says even the demons believe. Even the demons believe that Jesus is God. That doesn't make you and I special. They're, they're, they don't have a, a relationship with him. There's no intimacy there. They're not going to spend eternity in his presence. Here's what belief is. If, if tomorrow, or we found out today, that you have a, a life-threatening disease or ailment, and there's an emergency surgery that's happening tomorrow morning, and it's, it's, it's life or death. We don't know how it's going to go. And I call you up, and I'm just going to pray. And then I ask you this question. I say, hey, do you, do you believe in the doctor? I'm not asking you if you believe in the doctor's existence. I, I can get on Google, and we can fact check that. What I'm asking you is this. Do you trust this doctor with your entire life? Tomorrow morning, are you willing to take your life and put it in this doctor's hands by climbing onto the table and letting her cut you open and remove what's killing you? Do you believe? So that, that's the image that Jesus paints. That's the image of the gospel. Are you willing to take your life and Texas Hold'em style, push all the chips in and say, Jesus, you, I trust you and you alone. And when we repent and we believe, this is crazy, okay? The Bible says that we go from being enemies of God to being adopted into the family of God. Now watch this. We're able to start the process of stepping back into God's design. 
This is, this is why we say, if you've been around us a little bit, that the gospel is not how you get heaven when you die. It's how you get heaven before you die. That we get to experience God's kingdom here and now as we walk with him. Just real talk. I mean, 24 hours ago, like we're on our knees. Like maybe one of the most scary situations that, that Jane and I have walked through as a married couple and to be honest, I don't know if I've experienced heaven like that ever before. Because of your prayers, of, of your support, of your encouragement, the spirit of God surrounding, I've never felt peace like that. And the gospels we walk in, it allows us to begin to recover that and pursue that in our own lives. But watch this. But also in the lives around us. The church exists. Listen, we have the gospel good news. And we're sent into our community to help usher in the kingdom of God and to recover and pursue God's will for our city. And when we, when we do it his way, when we love people the way he's designed us to love, the Northwest San Antonio begins to look a lot more like heaven than it did before. So that's, that's, that's the gospel good news, okay? And so yeah, take, take a photo of that, memorize it. Uh, man, I spent way too much time there. Uh, so here's what we're gonna do. No, I didn't. This is, what, this is the most important thing. So uh, here's what we're going to do. I want to break it down practically. And I want to give you two reasons that the gospel needs to be most important. Two reasons that I, I, would, I would pray over Lyndon. And then I'm going to give you two ways to actually start this process today and tomorrow. Okay? So uh, number one, if you're taking notes, the first reason the gospel has to be the most important is this. It's because without the gospel, people are hopeless. You and I are hopeless. Lyndon is hopeless. That it does not matter how good you and I are in the world, like if we don't understand and grasp the gospel. Apart from the gospel, people are lost from eternity. This is what, what the disciples would say. Jesus would say this. That, that Listen, Jesus, there is no other name given to men, like anything under heaven, by which we can be saved. There, there's no other name. There's no other option out there. Jesus isn't just the best option. He's not like your most convenient option. He's it. He's the only option. Now, just real talk, real talk, real talk. I know, depending on where you are in this journey, there are some of you that would go, Drew, are you kidding me? It's our first time here. We've just been here for a few weeks. And all of a sudden, you're going to step into this moment and you're going to have the audacity to tell us that, that Jesus is the only way. That, that, that he's, we're hopeless without him. Yes. Yes, I am. And you may go, but, but Drew, like, how, how narrow-minded are you? How close-minded can you be? Are you kidding me? I want you to think about this just for a second. You and I, by our own lives, our own omission, have given the proverbial middle finger to God and said, thanks, but no thanks. You and I, you know what we deserve? Nothing. We deserve death. We've earned that. That's what we have been given. So listen, just real talk. If all of a sudden God chooses to make a way, wouldn't it make sense that he gets to decide that way? And, and listen, how narrow-minded of us for us to say, no, God, I think there should be more options. I think there should be a buffet. I can't believe that you would make only one way. 
Instead of being like, I, God, the fact that you made a way at all. How, how open-minded do you have to be to believe that God would choose to make a way at all and that he would do it his way? That's on him. Apart from Christ, whatever earthly things that we engage in, no matter how good they are, simply will not last. We can love our community. We can love the refugees and the immigrants. We can love college students. We can fight for the health of the marriages in our community. We can lift up morality. And all of those things are good, but outside of Jesus, they're hopeless. They're hopeless. Jesus would even say it himself. He would say it this way, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? What Jesus is saying is you can pursue all that life has to offer, but if you miss me, you miss it. There's no profit. That's the one thing that I've, these last 48 hours, I've been praying for Tilly and Lyndon. That as they grow up, that they would have the lens to see the gospel, to see the world through that lens. And as they meet people along the way that may be seen by worldly standards to be successful or popular or rich, I want to be able to pull them aside and go, hey, sweetheart, consider like, where, where their hope really is. They, ha they have everything that the world has to offer, but they don't have Jesus, and they will die. Just real talk. You know, 10 out of 10 of us, that's the stat, that 10 out of 10 of us will die. I don't know if that's a news flash. And we don't like to talk about that. Like, we hate thinking about death. Do you know that 30% of the four Gospels, which are just Jesus' biography, 30% of it, roughly, was spent talking about Jesus' death? We don't like that. Just look at, look at our world. We take our, our cemeteries and we put them outside of the city so we don't have to drive by them and see them. 80% of the elderly die in homes so that they're not close to us and we don't have to deal with that, real talk. It, cos, like cosmic surgery is like an 80, like it's billions and billions of dollars. Why? Because we want to disguise the fact that we're dying. But we're all, we're all going to die. And without Jesus, we have no hope. And you may be like, dang, this is dark. Uh, I, I tell you this because I do love you. And I don't want you to leave this place putting all of your hope in what will not satisfy. And so I love you enough to go, hey, Jesus does satisfy. I've seen it more in the last 48 hours. And I know it to be true. He really does satisfy. The second thing I want you to see, the reason the gospel has to be the most important thing for us as a church and as individuals is because without the gospel, Christianity is powerless. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He says in verse 1 and 2, he says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preach to you. That, that, there's two words there, are being. You are being saved. 
That, that's progressive language. It's this ongoing salvation. Not just that you were, you were saved once, but that you are, yes, that happened, but you're also being saved. It's active. It's present tense. Now, there's two dimensions. I'm going to try to do this really quick. There are two dimensions to salvation. Um, and so you're going to sound really smart if you can take this in. Okay, first is there's positional salvation. The second is there's progressive salvation. Let me explain really, really quick. Positional salvation says this, that the moment, the moment that you pushed all the chips in and said yes to Jesus, in that instance, that you went from being dead in your sin, enemy of God, to being adopted into the family, now, now a child of God, now a son or daughter of the king of the universe, in an instant, nothing that you did, nothing that you earned, that's given to you. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see the brokenness. He doesn't see the flaws. He doesn't see the sin. When he looks at you, he sees perfection. Why? Because when he sees you, he sees his son Jesus, who was perfect. Like that's, if you, if you know Jesus and you love him, that's where you stand today. Like completely saved. Like you think about like just actual adoption. There's a moment you're standing in court when you're a part of another family and in one instant, you're now part of another family and nothing, nothing that child will ever do will ever change that. But Paul is talking here about progressive salvation. He's referring to your growth and maturity in Christ's likeness for the rest of your life. And so how does that happen? Where does the power of that, for that growth come from? It's the same place that your initial salvation came from. Believing in the gospel. Putting your weight into that. That's why he says, if, if you, if you hold the gospel, if you cling to that, if you keep putting your weight onto that, there's gonna be this progressive change that you grow in Christ the same way that you begin in Christ. By holding fast to the gospel, re-believing it, and meditating on it. When, when I... When I first started following Jesus as a high school student, I believed that the gospel was just like the ABCs of Christianity. It was like 101, you know, the door that gets you into the Christ Christianity. It's like, it's the, it's the diving board that launches you into the pool of Christianity, right? So therefore, my mindset was the gospel was for those who don't yet trust Jesus. It was a message for unbelievers, but what Paul is communicating is this, is that the gospel is not just the diving board to which that we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the entire pool. The, the gospel is not the ABCs, it's the A through Zs of Christianity. That we grow in Christ not by moving beyond the gospel, but by pressing deeper into it. That's why Paul says that he's determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Whatever Paul is walking through or wrestling with, he keeps coming back to Jesus, the Jesus, him and him crucified. That's how we get the power. That's how we, we grow in this. That's, how, that's why Christianity has power. It's why it works. Pastor J.D. Greer, he says it this way. I think this is beautiful. He said, the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done, the gospel. Only when you and I realize that nothing that we do impresses God are we motivated from the heart to do everything we can to please him.
So let me show you one more quick place. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says this. He says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. It's the face of Jesus Christ. And are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Or some translations say from one degree of glory to the next. So how do we grow in our love for God? We see more of Jesus. Like how do we grow in obedience and self-control and the fruits of the Spirit? We see more of Jesus. Like what, what should we be doing? Every time that we gather, or every time I, I preach here, it should be helping you to see more of Jesus and him crucified. And sometimes we make the mistake of making this Bible out to be just a bunch of heroes, about heroes that we're supposed to emulate or rules that we're supposed to follow or maybe a bunch of little good advice about how we, we can you know, be better at our marriages or in our job. But the truth is that this entire book is just about Jesus and how we can know him better and see him more clearly and walk in the life that he offers us. So finally, let me, let me break this down. Let's get practical. How do we actually do this? It's most important because of the power and because without it, we're hopeless. But how do we focus? How do we shift our eyes there? Uh, two things real quick, then I'm done. First is this, we have to focus on honesty and who we really are and where we're really at, not in hiding. It's what repentance in many ways is all about, being honest with who you are and where you're at. If you think about this, in, back in the story of Genesis, in uh, Genesis chapter two, it ends and it says this, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and they were completely unashamed, which is maybe kind of weird for many of us, but it's unbelievably poetic and beautiful. Adam and Eve were fully known. All of their blemishes, their most insecure place, all their vulnerability, and they felt zero shame. They felt zero shame. Well, all of a sudden, when they choose to step out on their own, the scripture says this, that their eyes were open. All of a sudden, instead of seeing God for his, who he is, seeing him the treasuries, they begin to turn inward and they got self-conscious and they begin to notice that it was all about them and they were naked. And so what do they do? They run and they hide and they cover themselves in fig leaves. Tyler Statton, who's a pastor now in Portland, uh, in his book, Searching for Enough, he said this. He said, Adam and Eve, they realized they were naked and they became self-conscious for the first time, human beings turned their focus inward and felt the need to cover up, to hide parts of themselves while intentionally presenting, other, or, yeah, presenting others to put on a best self, a public self. Fig leaves, it was the, first, the world's first attempt to control self-perception. And since that day, we've never managed to stop feeling the need to do the same. Adam and Eve reached for fig leaves and the whole world became a fashion show. You ever think about this for a second? What's like, you know, even today, one of like the most reoccurring horrific nightmares that most of us have. It's that moment walking through, you know, middle school and you're heading into the cafeteria and you sit down on a very cold seat and it's in that moment that you realize you're naked. You don't have clothes on, right? We've all had that dream. Tyler Statton, 
he would, he would connect the dots and he would say this, we all have that dream because it was our first nightmare. We go back to Genesis chapter three when we realized that we were naked and vulnerable and we're scared. And all of us today have a tendency to put on fig leaves. And it may look different. It may be a $10,000 Armani suit with gold cufflinks. It's just fig leaves. It may be scandally dressed so that you can get the attention of some guy. It's just fig leaves. It may be a title that you carry in front of your name of professor or pastor or teacher or lawyer or mom or dad or whatever it may be, but it's just fig leaves. It's just fig leaves. We have to be honest. Richard Foster, I'll read this real quick. This is cool. He said, humility or being honest with ourselves means to live as close to the truth as possible. The truth about ourselves, the truth about others, the truth about the world in which we live. Humility, in fact, is filled with power to bring forth life. Being honest is where the power of your life enters in and begins to take form. The word itself comes from the Latin word humus, which means fertile ground. Humility is where the ground begins to get fertile and God begins to actually do some stuff. It helps us focus. So instead of hiding, we're honest. The second thing is this. We focus on done, not do. Focus on done, not do. In many churches, uh, I think we have a tendency to emphasize what you should do or should, shouldn't do instead of what's already been done. When I first started attending church as a new believer, I noticed that that seemed to be the focus, right? That Christians is all about what they should wear or shouldn't wear, what movies they should watch or shouldn't watch, what music they were allowed to listen to or weren't allowed to listen to. It was all about what you do. Even if we're not careful as a church, we can put our focus on, on attendance or, or how we do mission or one-on-one -on -one discipleship or being in a house church. All of those things, good and super helpful. But the gospel is not about what you should do. It's about what Jesus has already done. And in holding fast to the message is where the power is. Holding fast to the message, message is what enables us to love mercy and fight for justice and display compassion. That's why my hope and my prayer even in these weeks ahead is this, that every time you hear me preach, that none of you would ever leave this place and go, I should do more. I'm not doing enough. But instead, as we teach from this scripture, maybe there'll be a moment that, that you, you stop writing and you lift your eyes and all of a sudden you become painfully aware of what Jesus has already done for you and it would lead you to a place of worship. It is only when we realize that we can do nothing to impress God are we motivated from the heart to do everything to please him. If today you know and love Jesus, I want you to know that there is absolutely nothing that you will ever do that could make God love you more. Like I, I love the lyric in that there's this song um, that's getting really popular called Jira just says this, like you're never going to be more loved than you are right now by the God of the universe. It doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. You can't change that. 
And sadly, that's not the message that has been taught to many of us. We still have performance anxiety. We still feel like that on our best days, if we do really good, maybe we got up, we had our quiet time, we were really loving, maybe we gave a few dollars to someone that we saw that were in need, and then all of a sudden we get to the end of the day and God loves us a little bit more, right? He's, he's more pleased with us. And then on the days that we hit our snooze button and we're kind of short with a coworker, we get home and God's a little disappointed in us. That's the gospel of do in your life, not the gospel of done. It is only when we sit underneath the waterfall of God's grace, his mercy, his love, when we see him as the treasure that, we are, that he really is, that we look at all those things and go, yeah, yeah, I don't want those. I don't, I don't need to do those things. I don't, I don't want to walk. I just want you. And whatever that means and whatever that looks like, I want you because you've already done all of it. So church, listen, I want to give you some space, 120 seconds. And I want you to just man, wrestle today. Where are you? The typical questions that we ask is, 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 what is God saying to you right now? Like we believe that through this message, through worship, he's whispering to your heart in a language that you can understand. What's he saying to you? And can I ask you the second question is this, what are you going to do about that? How, 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 do, you, how do you step into that? How do you walk in obedience? And just say real talk. I know that in a room this size, that the, I would love to naively believe that all of us are all in and we've given our life to Jesus and we love him. But the truth is that statistics would say that there are many of you in this room that you don't yet know Jesus. There's never been that moment you're like, hey, I'm in, I'm in, it's yours. There's never been that, that moment that you finally stopped doing all of the things to try to please God and you just go, hey, listen, I'm gonna put my weight and my belief in what you've already done on the cross, what you already say about me. So if you find yourself still in this space, still trying to do, still trying to perform, still trying to da dance to make God love you more, stop and just receive it. Like a lot of times if you've been around church a little bit, we'll, we'll talk about like maybe a sinner's prayer, but that, that's all that is, is just stopping and saying, okay, God, I can't do this. I'm tired. Religion isn't fixing me. Relationships aren't fixing me. All the promises of the world, they're not helping. At least not for long. I'm stopping. And I'm gonna put my weight on what you did. And I'm asking you to restore and, to and fix, and I, I, I want to step into this relationship. I, I want to know the life that you offer. I want to walk with you. I want to be fully known. I want to be fully loved by you. That's, that's the invitation, church. It's not to come here and perform for everybody. So I, I don't know what you need this, this, this morning, and I'm not going to pretend to know. But if you're in this space and you don't know Jesus, there would be no greater joy than to get to introduce you to him, to help you stop doing and learn to just rest in what's already been done, to learn to walk with him. And so in this 120 seconds, if you don't know Jesus, if maybe you came with somebody this morning who just does know him, you go, hey, like, I, I listen, you, you know him and love him, 
maybe grab them. Maybe you can go to the back or slide. Like, do whatever you got to do. Go, just go, hey, listen, or let's go grab lunch real quick because I got lots of questions. Just introduce me. That's all like, so I want. Help me. If, if you're here and you don't, like, I, listen, I'll be hanging on the back. Georgie, Marcus, like, Austin, Austin, we'll, we'll, we're, we're around. We, we would love. Come find us. And we'd love to introduce you to him. We'd love to journey with you. So let me pray, and I'll just give us 120 seconds. Jesus, I... God, we want to see you. We want to know you. We want you to be the focus of our life because ultimately that determines where we land and we want to land with you. We want to be with you. And so I, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are in this space who, who are wrestling, who feel the weight or, or just don't know what the next step is towards you. Would you help them? Would you give them clarity? Would they feel your kindness this morning that brings us to repentance? that you're not disappointed in us. You're not frustrated with us. You're not wagging a spiritual finger telling us to fix ourselves. You know, you, you welcome us and you walk with us. So Father, my brothers and sisters, would you help us to take that next step? And Father, for those in this space who don't know you, would you help them to take their first step with you today? Church, take two minutes. And just wrestle with what's God speaking to you and how can you respond? Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.